From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Kendall Seesmeyer. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm your host. Over the last few weeks, I've received a surge of texts and phone calls from local politicians. Most of them focus on one issue, crime. Worried about the rising crime? Want to keep you and your family safe? Vote for me. I'll make sure to fund the police and get the riffraff off our streets. Direct quote. Crime is being used as a wedge issue this midterm season, and candidates are stoking fears in the hopes to mount a meaningful backlash to recent progress in both policing and criminal legal reform. At the same time, state and national leaders are hard at work seeking to criminalize access to health care for trans and pregnant folks. This interest in criminalizing new behaviors while holding the line on age-old crime and punishment tactics is a worrying trend. Joining us today to discuss is Somal Trevetti, Senior Staff Attorney for the ACLU's Criminal Law Reform Project. Loyal listeners of At Liberty will remember Somal from his time guest hosting earlier this year. Somal, it's great to have you back on the mic. Thanks, Kendall. It's great to be here. Um, I'm so glad I'm on this end this time. Hosting is so much harder than guesting, let me tell you. That might be true, but you are going to be doing most of the talking. So we'll see. We'll see after this how you feel. Great. Um, So I want to start this conversation by just touching on some recent headlines. Polls are showing more and more Americans are worried about crime in their towns and cities. According to a recent Gallup poll, for the first time since 2016, a majority of respondents said that they personally worry a great deal, in quotes, about crime. We saw this fear perpetuated all over the news in 2020, 2021, and now we're seeing it in 2022. It's become a bit of a political wedge issue ahead of the midterms. So to start, I was wondering if you could just tell us about what the data currently says about where crime is in the U.S. right now. Yeah, it's a good question. And and I want to start by saying that this is an age-old conundrum, right? Politicians have been stoking fear about crime for time immemorial to win elections. Um, It often works. It often makes people feel afraid, despite the data and the reality on the ground. Um, So let's talk about the reality on the ground, which is complicated. On the one hand, especially during the pandemic, certain types of crimes did spike. There's no denying it. And especially violent gun crimes. And it is incumbent upon leaders at every level of government, including law enforcement, to talk about that and do something about it. On the other hand, many types of crime fell during the pandemic. Violent crime in many places is falling now. And what's most important is that um, crime as a general matter has been falling for a long time. So that's the data. Now, what's the conundrum? It's that people feel how they feel right? And I don't think it is a viable political or human strategy to just tell people that they're wrong about how they feel. We've got to meet people where they are. 
So if politicians are going to try to game the system by stoking fear, we need to not belittle that those feelings. We need to not talk down to people, but we need to explain to them the reality and then say, look, we're in this with you together. So that's the tough part about the rising crime narrative is that it is in many ways wrong, in some ways right, and in all ways important for us to address whether it's wrong or right. Does that make sense? It does make a lot of sense. And I do think that's really important. But I also see on the more progressive side a a certain attempt at just trying to pretend it doesn't exist. And I'm not sure that that's always the most effective. But it made me think about, you know, San Francisco recently has been in the news because they recalled their progressive prosecutor, Chesa Budin. Uh, I want to get more into progressive prosecution later in that you know, broader movement. But the larger question of whether or not progressive prosecutors are effective has fueled also this kind of rising crime rhetoric. Um, and some say, you know, why don't progressives just admit that there's been a rising crime and demand more progressive social reforms uh, and, and use that almost to pivot to, well, this is why we need these expansive social uh, benefits and programs. How do you respond to that? Do you think that is the right way to address these fears? Absolutely. I think you nailed it. So this is a two-part issue, right? On the one hand, election results, I believe, have been overblown a little bit. For every San Francisco in this cycle, there were successful platforms and ideas um, winning across that state and across the country, including in places you would be pretty surprised by, right? Polk County, Iowa, and Cumberland, Maine, and uh, Winnebago County, Wisconsin. There are places around the country electing folks uh, who are running on these kinds of platforms of respecting the Constitution and reducing mass incarceration and attacking systemic racism. Um, the movement as a whole has been consistently growing not shrinking. And I think that explains a lot of the focus on that one single race and that one single outcome is because they want it to be a bellwether when statistically it's just not. Our ideas are winning. Um, However, that second thing you said is really well taken, which is progressives should not ignore the way people feel. They should not shrink in times of rising crime, whether real or perceived. They should come out touting that progressive reforms across the board, both within the criminal justice system and outside it, are the way to reduce harm, reduce crime, increase social prosperity. Our ideas are better on both metrics. They keep you both more safe and they keep us all more fair. Um, And so I think it's high time for us to recognize that the world is yearning for a different approach. We all want to help people. But we realize that the criminal justice system is not the way to do it. So voters might have been frustrated in San Francisco and taken it out on the DA. But in general, what they're looking for are progressive solutions. So let's give it to them. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that that's so interesting that we are only looking at the punishment side, the punishment mechanism, instead of the prevention mechanism. Arguably, the whole effort isn't to just try to not have punishment mechanisms. The effort is to not have crime in the first place. Every parent teaches their kid 
an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? We all grow up with axioms like this, that it's better to get ahead of problems than have to deal with them after the fact, and that we don't apply them to this very obvious scenario. And I think what else is interesting and should buoy us in this way is that polling consistently bears this out. Um, vast majorities of the country don't want to deal with drugs via the criminal justice system. Independents, Republicans, Democrats, everybody agrees by overwhelming numbers that the war on drugs is a failure and that addressing addiction and other issues like that, other public health issues through the criminal justice system is not where we're going to go. But if we don't offer them and don't come through with the non-carceral solutions, of course, we're giving breathing room to regressive voices who are going to want to fill the gap with law enforcement. And, and criminal law reform actually does feel like one of those issues that is very bipartisan and, and has has kind of finally made its way to a point where people are largely believing in the same things, policing aside. And so that's, I think, a little bit why to me it's confusing to see this reinvigorated campaign conversation. So I want to dig in a little bit more to the history of criminalization and where all of this comes from. But first, I want to address one other headline, which is, you know, if it wasn't a, you know, complicated enough time for criminal law, we're now awaiting a final decision in the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case that will likely, as evidenced by Justice Alito's draft opinion, uh, overturn Roe v. Wade. 20 states have trigger laws on the books that will immediately ban abortion in their state, making it illegal and therefore a crime to either seek, aid, or provide abortions. Which to me means that we're just, this could cause and create uh, quite the expansion in the criminal legal system for a whole new class of behaviors. What is concerning most to you about this from a criminal legal standpoint? Unfortunately, America has a long history of dealing with public health issues via the criminal justice system. We're one of the only societies in the world that still does that. That's why we have 4% of the world's population, but 25% of its incarcerated population. And this is going to be a test case, sadly, um, in how we approach what has always been a public and personal health matter, which is pregnancy, right? Um and there is unfortunately no doubt in my mind that in certain places with certain prosecutors oriented towards a certain political ideology, not because it's better for public safety, but because it aligns with a certain political ideology, will use the criminal law to attack people um, associated with pregnancy outcomes, both the people who are pregnant and the people providing them, as you said. And I hope to God that the Dobbs opinion doesn't come out as we all believe it will. But if it does, prosecutors of every stripe have a choice to make. Police have a choice to make. Judges have a choice to make. They all have immense discretion as to whether to follow these sorts of criminal laws that have nothing to do with public safety or not. Um, and it'll be very telling to see what kinds of people um, choose, choose to prosecute these very vulnerable individuals and choose not to. It was interesting to me to dig a little bit into history and learn, you know, during Roman times, prominent figures of society were often banished for just creating dissent against government. We still see that today in many parts of the world. 
In the 17 to late 1800s, England resorted to exporting their criminals to Australia as a way to remove the cla- this class of people from society altogether. Um, so throughout history, we are seeing this theme of exiling or neglecting people who we deem criminals based on just um, a, a preference of uh, what kind of people we want to keep around us. Do you think that this is a true characterization still of our legal system today? 100%. Both the criminal law and the implementation of the criminal law, the enforcement of the criminal law, are political choices. On every end of the spectrum, don't fall for this trope that law enforcement officials just call it like they see it. Their job is to enforce every law and it's lawmakers' jobs to create the law in the first place. That is not true. Uh, Police and prosecutors make choices, discretionary choices every day about which laws to enforce and which not, how harshly to enforce them, how um, aggressively to pursue certain kinds of people. Um, We see this with homelessness, right? Laws criminalizing homelessness um, have been around forever, right? Because of this, this feeling that you've accurately tapped that some people just don't want to see homeless people. Nobody thinks that cycling homeless people through jail for a day or two here and there over and over and over will fix homelessness, but they win political points by clearing homeless people off the streets for a couple of days or looking tough doing so. But certain prosecutors decide to prosecute those cases and certain prosecutors don't. Um, and that too, is a political choice. And I think we should all just be more honest with ourselves that our law enforcement apparatus is there to effectuate political choices. And we should all just decide as voters which political choices we agree with. It's interesting to me to look at the war on drugs in the context of a political decision, because it becomes really clear to me that this whole group of behaviors that we had criminalized, we all have a different perspective on it now. That's right. And I'm glad you're looking optimistically at it because it's true. More and more places are deciding to decriminalize the use of certain drugs and more and more prosecutors uh, are deciding that it's not worth their time to criminalize that conduct, instead focusing on more important things. And yet we still arrest over a million people a day for drug-related offenses. Drug-related offenses are still the highest population in federal prisons still. Um, And so this actually highlights this political dichotomy that in some places we're making strides, in other places we're not. I think what is fascinating and difficult um, about our work at the ACLU is that with our decentralized system in America, where every city has a different police department, every county has a different prosecutor, every state has a different set of laws, the culture can move beyond these sort of draconian approaches but individual places can still be stuck in the past. And so that makes it a little bit like whack-a-mole, but you know, we can't give up. I think moving the culture has provided benefits so far, and we're just going to keep doing it. So the last group of people that I really want to talk about here is, again, and we, we mentioned this at the top, but people who are being criminalized essentially for just living their own self-determined lives. We see this across the country as trans and gender nonconforming folks are being criminalized for seeking affirming health care. To me, this is just wild to, to hear that someone could criminalize 
a behavior of someone just choosing what's right for their own body and for them for themselves. You know, I think that's the connection between what we see with potentially overturning Roe, but also this like state by state new criminalization of gender affirming care. How can we just criminalize behavior that isn't even hurting anyone? That's right. I mean, this is criminalizing hate, pure and simple. Right. There is no zero public health or public safety benefit to criminalizing kids getting gender-affirming care or doctors providing it or people of any kind. Or parents of children, right? Or parents of children. And by the way, this doesn't even stop with the criminalization. It also, in Texas, has child protective services coming over to snatch kids from their parents. Um, And luckily, we've done some legal work to stop that um, or at least slow it down. But um, this is a quintessential example, I'm glad you raised it, of the political choices that people call criminal or call public safety to give it the veneer of legitimacy when all it is is reactionary hatred. Um, And if you asked any prosecutor or any lawmaker who is out there trying to enforce these laws for the public safety benefit, they won't be able to tell you and they won't even try. Um, And so I would challenge people who say that, you know, a progressive approach to criminal justice is harming public safety. What public safety benefit is there to destroying people and destroying families? Isn't that worse for public safety? Doesn't that harm people? This is not just a conversation about whether crime rates, quote unquote, are up or down. This is about values. This is about the world that you want to see. And when you reject our ideas, you make room for new harms, harms that the police inflict on people, harms that prosecutors inflict on people. Um, And we never bake that into the cost-benefit analysis. We should be out there loud and proud saying, not only are our approaches better for public safety, they are better for justice, and that matters. Reducing mass incarceration matters from a fiscal standpoint, from a human standpoint, from a constitutional standpoint. And that should be a point on our side when you're thinking about what kind of justice system you want. Absolutely. I want to pivot to talking a bit about the solutions or the alternatives. Um, We've hinted at the fact that progressives need to have alternatives both in prosecution but also in prevention. So I want to talk about harm reduction. First off, Somal, can you define harm reduction and why is it a framework that we should use while thinking about alternatives to policing or criminalization? Sure, I'll give it my best shot. I will say I'm not a harm reduction expert. There are apropos of our conversation, non-criminal lawyers who can tell you about harm reduction better than I can. However, the way I conceive of it, harm reduction is the act of attempting to prevent or lessen harm by non-criminal, non-punitive means, no matter what that harm is. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the idea of instead of bailing out water, right? It's going to the source of where the water is, saying, what is causing this issue and fixing it from there? See, this is why you're the host, because that was such a better analogy and imagery than I, the lawyer, could conjure. So well done. (laughs) Thanks. I mean, that's how I visually think about it, right? Like, if you're taking a bucket and you're trying to fix a flood... I'd rather just fix the reason that we're having a flood, right, in the first place. So if we look at these alternatives that that are kind of harm reduction alternatives, one of the 
programs that I think is so impressive, and we've talked about it on the podcast before, is a program out of Oregon, Eugene, Oregon, called Cahoots, which reroutes 911 calls related to mental health issues to mental health care professionals and dispatches mental health care professionals instead of police. What can you tell us about the efficacy of of these kinds of programs that we're starting to see uh, now move across the country? Yeah, it's a great example. It is happening more and more. And I think there's two key components of these programs. First, um, they reduce the harm that police can sometimes inflict on people in mental health crisis. Police are not trained enough in these matters, nor should they be, right? We have people who are trained in addressing mental health response. They're called counselors. They're called healthcare professionals. And so this is a prime example of harm reduction, both because police, uh, we avoid unnecessarily unnecessary and sometimes violent interactions between police and people in mental health crisis and the mental health responders can reduce the harm of that crisis in real time. There's a program in Denver called the STAR program, um, which we're hoping to move across the country as well, that uh, in the most recent study reduced low-level crime by 34% because they are rerouting people in mental health crisis who would otherwise be uh, resorting to certain kinds of criminal behavior or harmed by the police outside of the system entirely, and it's had real results. Um, I think the other thing to note about it that's really important is police like these programs too. Yeah, it it's not so adversarial then, right? Because, you know, I think that we can become a people of camps, right? Where we have these people are pro-police, these people are anti-police, when the reality is how can we create solutions that are actually going to help everybody? And to that To that point, I actually wanted to talk a minute about something that I think most I had never heard of until uh, working here, but this is the advent of the ambulance. And this goes back to uh, a group of people in Philadelphia who were trying to seek a solution for not calling 911 for physical health crises. I believe it was a predominantly Black community that wanted to uh, create a mechanism so that they wouldn't have to call the police because of, obviously, the very damaging engagements that the Black community throughout history has have had with, with police. And so, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of programs like CAHOOTS, right? So, they develop this ambulatory program where people who are medical professionals are trained and dispatched to these areas for these emergencies, The ambulance is something that we now all have access to. To me, that was such a striking example of how a program like CAHOOTS, a mental health first responder team, while not normalized right now, could become the ambulance that we know and love today. And I mean, if you asked anyone, hey, do you guys want police showing up to your heart attack? They would say, that sounds like a bad idea. It doesn't feel like they're really going to fix much. I mean, when your house is on fire, they don't send police. When your leg is broken, they don't send police. Uh, Why, if you're experiencing an overdose, do they send police? It's exactly right. 
One could even say that if you are in a mental health crisis and they send police, that's a violation of your ADA rights under the American with Disabilities Act. Why should people experiencing the results of a disability be discriminated against by sending people who are not trained to help with that disability? Um, so, uh, yes, I, I do agree. I do see the tide turning and I do agree that we can find a common sense middle ground here on alternative approaches, harm reduction approaches um, that do not involve the police in the first instance. And I think everybody, police and law enforcement included, would be happy to see innovations like that, just like they're thrilled to have ambulances go to a heart attack instead of them. The other alternative, like we have talked about, kind of both there's the punishment mechanism and also the prevention of social these social issues in the first place, that mechanism. And I think the other thing I wanted to bring up is actually a former intern of the podcast is now a caseworker in New York City for folks who are transitioning out of prison, serving prison times or jail sentences, and then or awaiting trial. And, you know, I had dinner with her recently and I asked her, Rachel, what is the thing that you think would turn the tide for your clients? And she said, housing. She said, housing. And I thought, oh, that's so interesting because we're having these big local conversations across the country about unhoused people and crime and the correlation to crime. And and to me, you know, it really rubbed up against what we have seen in the national dialogue about progressive prosecutors, which is, oh, well, we still have an unhoused population. They're not doing their job. And again, it, it struck me that that's a lack of really, that that framework is thinking about, oh, well, we should just have a punishment mechanism for a behavior that we don't like instead of a prevention mechanism, like affordable housing or housing for all. It is important, interesting, and correct. It is correct that when we provide people with upstream supports that keep them above water, they don't resort to other kinds of activities. Um, and again, nobody thinks that jailing people without a house gets them a house. It just keeps them out of my line of sight for a couple days. Um, and anyone would tell you in any other situation that that treating the symptom is not the same as, as curing the disease. And if we have, if, if people are off put by seeing other people, other of their fellow human beings not having a house, the solution is to give them a house. Um, and that solution, while it may sound expensive or sound profligate, is actually cheaper on the whole than continuing to waste resources via cops and prosecutors in jails and prisons to not achieve a preventative solution, to just have to rinse, repeat over and over and over again. So there are a few key interventions that we can all make outside of the criminal sphere that will allay some of our fears inside the criminal sphere. One of them, housing, income, jobs programs, cleanly parks and green spaces, education, expanding Medicare, mental health treatment, drug addiction treatment. If you actually care about preventing crime, then join us on this proven journey of how to prevent crime. And if we want to learn lessons from the outlier cases in which progressive prosecutors or other criminal justice reformers fail, 
I think it's that we don't tie these explicitly together to bring this full circle. I don't think we should pretend that law enforcement can fix all of our problems because they're not criminal problems in the first place. They're political problems. They're social problems. So I think we should be very, very clear about the limitations of even the most progressive criminal justice approach because it has to be paired with smart approaches to other areas of policy. Right. And to just lean in a little bit on the progressive prosecutor movement, as you mentioned, a prosecutor can determine what kinds of resources they put towards which kind of crimes and which kind of crimes they actually take to court. I know we don't have probably enough time to fully get into all the tenets of progressive prosecution, but why is it such an effective model for reducing harm and also hopefully reducing crime? It's a great question. And I'm glad you actually referred to it as a model because I want to be clear um, that the ACLU doesn't support particular candidates, right? We're a nonpartisan organization. What we do support is models, is visions for the future that protect the constitution and reduce mass incarceration and reduce racial disparities. And that is essentially the model of the quote unquote progressive prosecutor. And all that means is a prosecutor who uses their vast, vast discretion to reduce some of the harms. They're not fixing all of our problems. They're not fixing homelessness. They're not fixing drug addiction. They are reducing the harm that the criminal justice system has imposed on people who are experiencing those things because historically, throughout the history of the country, the opposite approach has proved more harmful, not less. And and it hasn't helped both people with those issues or crime in general. If, if, if tough on crime approaches or models worked, we'd worked. be the safest. That's right. If they worked, we'd be the safest nation on earth. We are not. Um, and at the same time, while they haven't been keeping us safe, they've also been draining our finances and sticking millions and millions of people in jail and prison who didn't need to be there. Um, and so progressive prosecution seeks to reverse those, um, those deep, deep harms. It's very early in the movement. But every election cycle, including the last one, I am more and more encouraged that our platform is gaining ground. Individual candidates might lose here and there, but the platform of reducing harm uh, and seeking alternative non-carceral solutions to these problems that we all agree exist is gaining ground in the country. And I feel really optimistic about where it's going. And I guess to to put a final point on it, just to address, again, the national headlines, the rising crime narrative. What do you make of those those stories? And where do you see this model going in the future? I find them, honestly, the desperate cries of a movement that's losing, that's losing ground. We are gaining ground. The louder people cry about rising crime and the failure of our movement, it's to distract you from the gains of the movement. Now, again, everything isn't perfect. We need to address issues like spikes in crime as they occur and not pretend that they don't exist or minimize them or talk down to people who are feeling more unsafe. But as we've discussed, we need to explain to them that our approaches make them more safe. They make them more safe and us more fair. That is the promise of this movement. We haven't gotten it right yet, but we're getting there. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much much for joining to address all the the conversation that's going on around us. I think it's always really important to 
use our expertise here. We've been around the block <laughs> on this issue for a very, very long time. And, you know, I think these national narratives can be really confusing for people. And um, so I'm just really happy to have you back. Absolutely. It was great being back. Thanks so much for listening. We have a long fight ahead of us, but the ACLU was made for moments like this. To donate to support our fight against the attack on reproductive autonomy and all the attacks that follow, please visit aclu.org slash keepfighting. That's aclu.org slash keepfighting. Thank you so much for stepping up and working together with us. Until next week, stay strong.